Welcome to Sanctus Church. Let me paint a picture. Canada, the country that we love, is really post-Christian now. I've been trying to prepare us for years that it will not be the same. It's one thing to know it's coming or to intellectually acknowledge it. It's another thing to live it, to feel it. We as Christians are quickly being moved from the center of society to the margins of society, but let me go farther than I have before. Not only are we post-Christian, it seems that we are becoming post-secular at the same time. There, there's a hunger in our society for something more, and, and the more is not new. It's ancient. It's deeply old. It's paganism in all of its forms. There's the current exaltation of self. We now teach and believe intellectually and on a personal level that what I feel is truth. We are the authority of our own stories and our own self, not God, not God's word, my truth, my feelings, my facts, my background, my story, that's truth, that's my truth. So here we are now. Like I've been saying all year, one in 10 churches in our country has closed or is about to close. It's still true. Last week, I was in a meeting with a key leader in Toronto who's working the analytics on the ground and not in the greater Toronto area, within Toronto itself. There are 200 churches, as I'm preaching to you right now, that are on the verge of collapse, just in Toronto. Most people you're going to connect with are Christians. They're atheist or agnostic or spiritual but not religious or they belong to another faith. They're, they're Orthodox Jews or they're Buddhists or, or, or they're Muslims, you fill in the blank. And then there are some st who still call themselves Christian but it's ethnically rooted or it's historic. It's not real. But more's going on. Hold with me. Religious liberty is increasingly viewed with suspicion as a person said, it seems as a ploy for special privileges or a way to deprive other people of their rights. In other words, religious freedom is now viewed as dangerous. More and more of us as Christians just want to practice our faith without being demonized or for failing to affirm the new fundamentalism of progressivism. Quebec trying to ban religious symbols in workplaces a few years ago ourselves as a church, but also other Christians and Muslims and Jews were trying to work out what to do when the federal government said you can't get summer grant money for summer interns unless you held a pro-choice worldview within your organization. It was the very first attestation. attestation. We were blindsided. We didn't know what to do. We didn't think this would ever happen in Canada. There's more. Stan Fowler, who lives locally, who's a theologian, but also a historian, writes this. He said, the examples aren't hard to find. Trinity Western University was denied the right to launch a new law school because the school had a community covenant that required faculty, staff, and students to practice a traditional Christian sexual ethic as a Christian school. And the Supreme Court said that's wrong, inappropriate, un-Canadian. No. Parliament is on the verge, as I'm speaking, on passing Bill C-6, which will ban conversion therapy, but it actually hasn't defined what conversion therapy is. And many are expecting that law to be used to silence counselors and spiritual directors and pastors who simply teach and counsel people to obey the biblical instruction about sexuality without even changing someone's sexuality. Last June, he writes, a local Catholic school board was attacked mercilessly in the media when they tried to fly a distinctive pride flag that embodied a Catholic perspective. 
Stan Fowler writes, my letter to the editor in defense of the board's choice stimulated an extended email exchange with a professor at a well-known local university in which he asserted that my traditional sexual ethic deserves no more respect in Canada than the view of a white supremacist. Did you just hear what I said? Oh, and then he writes, and then there was the Andrew Shear saga. Now, let me just stop. This is me talking, not, not Stan. Uh, we know that here at this church, people vote in all directions. This is not saying you should vote conservative. But listen to what he articulates. Andrew Scheer was hounded during the 2019 election with questions about his ability to serve in public office while affirming his Catholic faith on issues like abortion and sexuality. Think about where that logic goes. Think about the long list of Canadians who would be unsuitable to serve in public. Are you a teacher? Are you a lawyer? Are you a doctor? Are you a nurse practitioner? Think about it. If you have a traditional view, you're now un-Canadian and dangerous? The point is that we as followers of Jesus want the ability in this country to practice our faith and invite others even to join our faith without being attacked or demonized or be called dangerous or un-Canadian. I mean, that actually is the, the historic understanding of a liberal democracy. Based on tolerance, tolerant used to mean, tolerance used to mean, I tolerate you even when I disagree with you. I will even defend your ability to disagree with me. But now tolerance means either you agree with me or you are hate-filled, a dangerous society, and should be shut down. Now, lots of you are getting the white hanky out. You're clapping. It's about time, John, you got serious about this. It's about time that you stood up for the church and you're ready to protest and tweet and say, man, whoa, stop. As Christians, we were never promised religious liberty in the Bible, right? And just because we had something that actually was good does not mean we always get to keep it, right? And let me bring this closer to home. We here at Sanctus Church reject and we renounce what we see happening in other churches that have given in to a different idol that feels closer to home and feels nice, but it's not from God. It's the opposite of what I just said. It's the idea of Christian nationalism. Here's what one American author wrote that helps us all understand. He writes, look, Christianity is a religion. It's a set of beliefs about ultimate things. Most importantly, the life, death, and physical resurrection of Jesus. It's drawn ultimately from the Bible, but also the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And I would say, amen, we've got all three on our website. And then he writes, Christian nationalism is a political ideology about American or Canadian identity. It idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with civic life. That's a great way of understanding it. Christian nationalism believes that the American nation, or I'll add the Canadian nation, is defined by Christianity, and the government should take steps to keep it that way and sustain and maintain our Christian heritage. If you're saying amen to this, you're a Christian nationalist. It's not merely an observation about American or Canadian history. It's a prescription for what America or Canada should do in the future. We should sustain and continue our identity as a Christian nation. That's Christian nationalism. But here's the problem, everyone. There's no such thing. Christians are those who have personally accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, Leader, and Lord. We belong to the kingdom of God, and we are called to be amazing citizens and influence the laws. Yes, 
But when you declare a nation Christian, you always water down the gospel. You remove the call for real conversion and real repentance and real life change. See, this is what happened in Europe. We Christianized it, but it was never Christianized. Now look how pagan it is. The disciples wanted, by the way, a political, religious kingdom. The Pharisees did too. And what did Jesus say in Luke 17, 20? Well, he said, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something you can observe. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Of course, he meant the Holy Spirit. See, let me break this down. We're living in a perfect storm. We got massive church shutdowns. The world, with all of its faiths and practices, now live in the GTA. Religious liberty for Christians and other faiths is systematically under attack in Canada, for real. It's not invention. At the same time, many, many Christians, including many of you listening to me right now, are trying to recover something that was not fully from God in the first place, and you think that idol is the answer to the problem that we're living in today. Oh, and if if that's not bad enough, Barna has just released a major study on evangelism in the church. The Great Commission is Jesus' last words to the church. You know, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be blunt, go convert people from every ethnic group and every religious group, faith or no faith. Go tell them the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, his physical resurrection, and tell them he's the only way to heaven and forgiveness is only found in his name. Well, in the U.S. and Canada, 51% of churches, uh, church-going Christians, don't even know the phrase Great Commission anymore. 25% uh, who took the study knew the phrase but didn't know what it meant. Now, of course, there are many people who are still, still telling others about Jesus and don't know the phrase, the Great Commission. The point here is this, though. Evangelism, declaring the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and telling people they're lost in eternity without Jesus, is losing ground in the local church in this perfect storm. Oh, and then COVID happened. And for the first time in a long time, the role of government in my life and your life and our family's lives and our church life got way closer to home. And it has revealed many more fractures. Masks, vaccines, and temporary church closures. Many Christians believe, including myself and actually the senior leadership and the leadership of this church, that when we mask or take a vaccine or shut down the church for a period of time, it is an act of Christian love, of neighborly love, and it's going to give us more authority to tell the gospel later and now. And this is our stance. And yet, other Christians are rejecting these as marks of Christian courage because they're concerned this could be used later to take away freedom. So then we're asking the question, well, what's the role of Christian conscience? When do we say yes to the government, no to the government in Jesus' name? Well, we'll get to that later in this series. Oh, and then we're having a massive racism conversation in our culture. We have been involved just like the rest of the world. We talked about a biblical definition of racism, both out of the book of Philemon this year and also in our vision update in January. And yet in this church, like every other church, there is not absolute agreement on what this means. (laughs) One group of Christians believes racism is still systematic in our society. It's systemic. Other Christians go, no, systemic racism is a progressive program to redistribute wealth and power to angry radicals, and it's a threat to liberty for all. In other words, they say this is making other people scapegoats and actually taking historic sins and pinning them on people that did not do it. And there's no agreement. See, this is why you're feeling the way you're feeling 
as a Christian in the middle of all this. See, there's no rest out there. But then when we come in here, there doesn't seem to be sanctuary here either. So, so what do we do? Well, we've addressed this evolving post-Christian experience many, many times. There was the double series out of 1 Corinthians called The Devoted and the Sent Ones back in 2017-18, talking about why our experience in the greater Toronto area is very similar to Corinth. Diversity, multiculturalism, sexuality, pluralism, materialism. Then there was Thriving in Exile out of the book of Daniel in 2018, How You Live Well in 2020 out of the book of Jonah, Asking God for a Revival in a Growing Pagan Moment. Then this year, 2 Timothy, The Good Fight, Purity in Thinking, Perseverance, How to Be Right in Doctrine. Then we talked about Convergence again, Walking in God-Given Power, no matter what we're facing. In all of these series, God, through His Spirit, and his word has taught us how to thrive in this ever-growing new post-Christian moment. But COVID has brought this to a new level. Things seem more bleak, more confusing, more lost, more divisive. And we're all asking, what now, Lord? What now? See, the church in Canada, and we as a people are languishing. You, you, you've heard about that probably online this week. That blah void between depression and flourishing. The absence of well-being. Welcome not just to our mental health. Welcome to the whole church in Canada. So what do we do? Well, that's why our pre-summer series is going to be so important. Today we enter into an incredible book in the Bible. It gives us hope. Welcome to the book of Esther. Now this book is such a gift for us today because it actually answers what do we do now in this moment. Now let's start by asking, what is this book and why would a 2,400-year-old book be helpful to you today and us today in this very difficult moment? Well, it's helpful in the strangest of ways. This historical book is not like any other book in the Bible. Why? Well, number one, God is not mentioned once at all. Can't find them. Two, there's not one messianic promise in the whole book. Jesus, future hope, not there. Three, no person in the book explicitly prays, reads the Bible, or gives to the poor. Four, the Bible, God's law, is mentioned once, but it's meant as a bad thing in the, in the mouth of someone who hates God's people. The, the law of the land, the secular law, are mentioned 14 times. In other words, God's law feels weak and small, but state law and culture feels overwhelming, strong, and in charge. There's no reference to the promised land, to the temple, to God's promises. The book is dangerous. It's written during a potential genocide of God's people, and Lastly, a woman is at the center of the book, which only happens one other time in the whole Bible in the book of Ruth. See, I think we're all looking around and going, well, where are you, God? And his word is, is weak feeling and everyone and everything feels bigger and more in control. And, and we are starting to feel more and more as strangers in our own country, no matter your ethnicity or gender or background. Living in Canada, you feel this angst because you're just a Christian. Oh, and while the house is burning, we're still at war with each other as Christians. Okay, let's start with the book itself. When does this happen? Well, nearly 500 years before Jesus, about 50 years, give or take, after Ezra led the Jews back to Jerusalem, a lot of Jews decided not to go back yet. They're still living in the land of Persia. Esther and Mordecai, along with many other Jews, chose not to make the trek back. They seem content to live in Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire. And this is where our story is set. This book is really helpful, but you've got to understand its history. This was written 
because it was helping the Jews celebrate a holiday still celebrated today called Purim. This book was written after the events to help Jews party well. And you're like, hold on a sec. You're telling me that this book was written to help Jewish people party well, but it's about genocide, God's not mentioned, and death? Yes, because they know in the end God wins. Here's how it begins, Esther 1.1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, who ruled over the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Xerxes is the Greek version of the king's name. There's a Persian and Hebrew version of his name too. The king is son of Darius. The king is the son of Darius I, who allowed the Jews to rebuild under Ezra, Haggai, and Nehemiah. Uh, sorry, Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah. He ascends to the throne around thir- at the age of 32, around 46 BC. And, and our story begins in his third year of his reign. Now, his massive empire is overwhelming. It's from modern-day Pakistan to India to Turkey to Sudan. 127 provinces is like saying the whole world. Now, it says, at that time, the king reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, the Persian emperors, by the way, had four capitals. One of them was called Babylon. But this was the winter court. This is actually where Daniel had his visions from, and this is actually where Nehemiah later became the cupbearer for this king's son. Now, the story behind the story matters. Xerxes' dad had wanted to destroy the Greeks and couldn't, and now his son is preparing for war. So our story begins with a huge gathering of all the nations under Persian rule. But why? Well, the king is showing off his wealth and power to gain loyalty and gain support for the next major war against the Greek Empire. Verse 3, here in Esther 1. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, and the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. For 180 days, he displayed his vast wealth of his kingdom and his splendor and the glory of his majesty. Now, there's a guy named Herodias who lives during this time, who records what the king says during one of these great banquets outside of scripture. And this is what Xerxes says. For this cause I have summoned you all together, princes, that I may impart my purpose. It is my intent, he writes, to bridge the Hellas point and lead my army through Europe to Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they've done to the Persians and my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but now he's dead. It was not granted him to punish them, and I, on his behalf and on all of Persia's behalf, will never rest until I have taken and burnt Athens to the ground. And as for you, this is how you shall please me as king. When I declare the time for you is coming, every one of you must appear, and whoever comes with his best army, best equipped, you will be given the best gifts. So in other words, Esther is written during a time where the king is preparing for a massive war against Greece. A global storm is coming. And it's at the end of 180 days of meetings and parties and gripping grins and political preparation and prep for war, we arrive at the last banquet in verse 5. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people, least to greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and and purple material and silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each goblet different than the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping, keeping with the king's liberality. 
And the king's command each guest to allow to drink with no restrictions, for the king had instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished. Now remember, all this money, gold, couches, and goblet, it's all around because they had conquered all sorts of other people. And think about this, in the middle of the vast amount of money, there's parting, no restraint. Money, sex, power, lust, war, paganism at its best. Now at this moment, another player is introduced. Her name is Queen Vashti. She's beautiful, she's strong-willed, she's independent, and she's very aware of Persian law. It says that Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for women in the royal palace. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high from, from wine, high, high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So the king's drunk, he's showing off all his wealth, and now he wants to show off his wife, her beauty dripping with jewels, brought in by seven men to end the great show. Now, Let's talk about getting hammered. This is gonna sound a little crazy to us, but in Persian culture, the most important matters of government were discussed when you were drunk, because they believed the more drunk you were, the closer you were to the gods, to the supernatural. Historians tell us that they had all their major meetings drunk out of their mind, and then the next day, someone would report to them the decision, and when they were sober, if they still agreed, they'd act upon it. So let me put it, it's an American term, but they're in the situation room, getting drunk out of their minds, seeing if they're gonna invade someone. That's what's happening here. It's not just drunkenness for drunken sake. They're actually talking about the coming war. Now, it says, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti, she refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, we need to get our history on. Our expectations or pain cannot lead us to understand what's happening here. The king is not just some idiot guy drunk out of his mind wanting to show off his hot wife. She did not obey as he's preparing his whole empire for war. And if his wife would not obey, why would all the other lords who are present obey? See, this is treason. This is a PR nightmare. If his own house won't follow him, why would his whole empire follow him? This was now possibly a national crisis. He's extremely angry, embarrassed. embarrassed. There's national implications on the table. Now again, let's just stop. So many people preach this story wrong. They say, oh, this is like, this is like feminism 101. This is amazing. Vashti stood up and I'm no sex symbol and, and her and Esther stick it to the system. No, no, no. Stop placing 2021 in this very ancient text. It's Marion Ann Taylor, actually from Wycliffe College, who helps us understand Vashti's mindset. See, the king's request, she writes, would have shamed and dishonored his queen, and it broke Persian law. See, concubines and musicians and dancing girls were the only women allowed to stay when men got drunk. Nobles' wives left the banquet when the drinking became too excessive. She knows what's right and wrong, according to their own law. So this is not a Me Too moment. Vashti has no problem with lesser women hanging out with the drunk men. And actually, we need to zoom out more. The point of this story is about the genocide of God's people. This story is about the attempt to stop God's redemption plan through the world, for the world through the Jewish people. Yes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes, male abuse is wrong. Yes, both women are living in a court that is, that is highly sexual, relationally, and politically charged. Yes, as the people of God, we should confront evil. But this book is not about that topic. 
Remember, Vashti is not Jewish. Oh, and Esther is Jewish. And the distinction is larger than they're just two women. It is, a, it is as queen, not as a woman, that she says no to the king. Well, the king calls in his lawyers and says, what can I do with her? And then they respond in verse 19, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in the law of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to someone who's better than her. So he sent dispatches to all parts of his kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own household using his native tongue. Now, I've heard this story my whole life, but I've never caught so much of this. See, there's mockery here. There's humor here. There's irony here. See, the advice goes to every province and then every household, probably in hundreds of languages. This act would have been known by very few people, but now the king, because of fear and stupid advisors, spreads it to his whole empire. And things begin to go off the rails there. Okay, let's just pause. Let's get back to Canada in 2021. Where are you, God, in my life? Where are you, God, in our country? This post-Christian thing is getting real and re more real by the moment. In this lockdown moment, I'm tired, I'm scared, I'm frustrating, and yeah, we're languishing. What are we supposed to do? Well, first things first. Sanctus Church, God is in control. The sovereignty and faithfulness of God is even found here in Esther. We know this because we know what happens after the story. So, so write this down. One of the greatest themes is God's silence is not his absence. God's silence is not his absence. God is sovereign. God is truly in control. And all these things pass away. One person I read this week said, really think about it. Think about the splendor of the Babylonian Empire. Gone. Think about the splendor of the Persian Empire. Gone. The splendor and power of the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. Think about Adolf Hitler and his claim of a thousand-year Reich. Gone. Think about the communist regime. Gone. Even we who are living in 2021, who live in the time where China and, and America in many ways are the empires of the day, they will fade too. All this comes and all this goes. But God and God's work outlives them all. In other words, God's plans will not be thwarted, and our good as Christians is found in God's ultimate plans. Listen to the favorite chapter for me in the Bible, Ephesians 1. It says in Ephesians 1.22, God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed Jesus to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, that's Jesus, who fills everything in every way. See, God called the Jewish people to prepare the world for Jesus. So many attempts to stop this have happened, including the story of Esther. But it did not work, and it will never work. Jesus came from the Jewish people, then physically rose from the dead, and his death and his resurrection was beginning to make all things right. And Jesus is above all things now, and Jesus and his work and his will fill the whole universe right now. God is with us. God always wins. And all this stuff that we're scared about, it's going to pass away. Post-Christianity, it's going to pass away. Paganism 2.0, it's going to pass away. Christian nationalism, it's going to burn and pass away. Don't put your hope 
and Canada is Christian. It's not. Don't put your hope in religious freedom. We might lose it. Don't give in to the new exalting paganism. It's going to leave too. But his kingdom is not going to leave. It's going to be okay. What did Jesus say? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He meant it. Listen, God sees all the faithfulness found in Sanctus Church. God sees all the good, by the way, in our church. As a human being, as a fellow Christian among you that belongs to this church, I'm feeling, my wife is feeling, my kids are feeling all the same things you are. The tired, the scared, the wondering, all this stuff. But listen, well done. Not all is lost. We've not lost our way. I'm proud of how many of us are walking in this season. But I want to encourage you pastorally and also as a fellow Christian, but also a leader in your life to keep moving towards not the better or the worst, but the best. And this just brings me to where I need to end at least today. Jesus is the better king. And Jesus is running the better kingdom. So all that's going on, all the temptations of the left and the right, knowing that we do need not need to fret or threaten others, start resting in God's full and lasting work. Can I, can I ask you to make this one thing, I'm about to say your obsession, the priority of your time, the priority of your online feed. Spend more time with the king the better king, and spend more time working and building the kingdom that actually is going to last. What did the better king Jesus teach us in our manifesto called the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Let me just sit with this for a moment. Seek, look for, search, Hunt, long for, linger, be consumed, be inspired, addicted, enthusiastic, devoted. Be all of that and do all of that first. This is a call for something that is primary, initial, original. This must be your opening. This must be your foremost. This must be your earliest. This must be the chief thing, the fundamental thing, the number one thing. What is it? Seek first the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? I've taught this for years in our church. Any space or place where the reign and rule of God is welcomed, embraced, and accepted through the person, the lordship, and the work of Jesus. You can't have the king without the kingdom. You can't separate the king from the kingdom's presence, the king's presence. In, in other words, the kingdom of God, of course, is found within us because we've all said yes to Jesus as Savior, leader, and Lord, if you're a Christian. The kingdom of God is in here. It's not in politics. It's not in technology. It's not in social revolution. It's here in relationship. Seek first the better king's rule in your life. Seek his righteousness. See, see catch this. A country can't seek righteousness en masse unless it's in relationship with God. And you can't be in relationship with God unless you personally know him through Christ. This righteousness, by the way, is not talking about justification, the standing we have with God. This is God's will. It's wanting to be like Jesus. 
to be conformed to the scriptures. As one old Scottish Christian wrote and prayed so long ago, oh God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things are going to be added to you as well. And then, oh, amazingly, then he says next, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will have enough worry for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I I love when one person said, don't borrow trouble. George MacDonald once said, no man ever sank under the burden of a day. It's when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today, the weight is more than we can bear. This is why Jesus taught us this thing about daily bread, daily provision, daily help, daily deliverance, daily hope, daily love, daily. I know this is a scary moment. And whether you have been in Canada your whole life and you have generations of ancestors who have lived here, or or maybe you are an immigrant and this is your new country, no matter who you are, It's an overwhelming moment, not not just because of COVID, but because the left and the right are becoming so loud and so aggressive and so dangerous. And we're caught in the middle of them. And, And the real scary thing is many Christians actually believe the answer to our national moment is actually an idol and not God. Jesus is the better king. Jesus has the better kingdom. As we know through the book of Esther, all the other stuff passes. It doesn't win. He does. So here's my encouragement as we get going. Seek first the king and the kingdom. If that's not your obsession, you're already out of step. Second, avoid consuming worry. Sit with the sovereignty of God. Sit with the sovereignty of God. I think we need to begin this series by praying for humility, but also asking the Holy Spirit to burn away and convict us of idols of the left and the right. So no matter who you are, wherever you're listening from, would you pray this? God, we're scared in this moment. We feel like we have no rest. We're we're mentally tired and we're languishing because of lockdowns and COVID. But as a church in Canada, we feel that we're moving from languishing actually to depression, languishing to destruction. And lots of us don't know what to do. And a lot of fear and a lot of apathy is now in the church. So Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit from north to south, east to west, across Sanctus Church, and actually to others listening in other churches. And would you expose in us the idols of the left and the right that will pass away. Show us what's not gonna last. Humble us. Help us to be quiet before we speak. And our simple prayer is you'd begin to refocus our eyes on Jesus, the better King, and that actually the kingdom of God that lasts would exponentially grow in this church, among these people that eventually will touch the nation. God, meet us in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 